Welcome to the 40th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about Conway's Law, which is the pattern where a system where systems and code design tends to mirror organizational communication structures. We're also going to discuss confirmation bias along the way and possibly the Dunning-Kruger effect. So that sounds really boring and technical and stuff. But I think all of us at some point in our careers have worked for a company that's not been as fun, um, perhaps have some sort of some sort of bias in how they operate that doesn't lead toward efficient software development or efficient operations. And this applies to system design and operational practices outside necessarily of the IT world, but in particular, you find this in systems that people design. And one of the things about IT is that we get to design systems however we feel like designing them. So Conway's law, formally stated, is... Any organization that designs a system, defined broadly, will produce a design whose structure is a copy of the organization's communication structure. Um, the term Conway's Law was coined in Fred Brooks's book, The Mythical Man Month, which if you have not read, you need to read. I believe Stallman restated it in his description of if you work for a company that's divided into four teams producing a compiler, you will have a four-pass compiler. And that is all too true. One of the the old classic signs of working for an organization that is has fallen victim to this is you have silos within the IT teams. You silos? Have, well, yeah, you have your DBAs who are separate from your sysadmins, who are separate from your developers, who are separate from security. And all of these teams write and design and build their own systems. And interoperation is usually an afterthought. Yes, when... These teams operate completely in a vacuum from one another. Triple spots. One of the classic patterns of large or large higher education is you have teams of folks dedicated to the academic mission in terms of supporting teaching and teams of folks dedicated to the administrative mission in terms of making sure that the SIS systems are running and making sure that the senior administrators have access to technology in other spaces. And... There's a there's a bridge, and the systems that each side builds are very different from the systems the other side builds. And doing so in a vacuum really makes sure there's, or ensures there is a ginormous chasm. And it's, once you get to the point where you have this ginormous chasm, you really start to deal with what is confirmation bias, pure and simple, where two systems have grown up, the folks that maintain each believe theirs is the one way to, to proceed. Their style of operations is the one way to proceed. But this is how you do databases. This is how you, this is it. There's the, that's the only way you can do it. This is or, how you scale to 100,000 people. Oh, but security. Everything has to change because of security. None of these are appropriate stances to take. The organization is trying to work together to deliver value somewhere to either a business partner or an internal shareholder or somebody else. And having these silos built up is part of what brought us the DevOps movement. The, the idea being that you break the silos down and you tightly couple the feedback loops so you can get past these kind of bizarre issues internally. And it also it changes the organizational culture, which therefore changes the way you write 
and design code and the way you design and build systems. And the confirmation bias that comes along with all of this is very clear in the, but this is how it's always been. This is how it always should be. And I'm right. You know, I've been doing it the correct way and everybody else is wrong. But really the, the dead giveaway is when you look at the code that your company produces or your web app is made from, is it good, clean, well-documented, well-tested code? Or is it a collection of individual components that may or may not work well together where there may or may not be good tests? There may or may not be great variable names for for simple signs. And it very much is that the code that your company, your team will produce directly mirrors how you can communicate and coordinate internally. And if you think about the teams that you work with, both your team and the other teams around you, if you have a good working relationship, that means your portions of the code will probably work well with the other people's portions of the code. And if there are teams that are siloed off and you don't have good working relationships, things will not be as rosy. There was a, a post, I think Google Plus, many years ago by a individual who worked at Google, I'll have to dig this up and put it in the show notes because it was a fascinating read, who had worked at Amazon for a number of years. And he was bemoaning a lot of the culture pieces at Amazon, but he struck upon one of the interesting things that culturally and organizationally they had done, which I think reflects a lot about Amazon's culture and also exposes a lot of the way the AWS infrastructure was designed and built. And that was that all of the different services within AWS had to treat everybody else as an external customer. Everything had to be rate limited. Everything had to be properly tokenized and API'd. And there were no back doors and there were no secret entrances to make sure that all of the things that were being built could individually scale correctly. But if you think about it, it also reflects a lot on the culture that Bezos built when he built the Amazon empire and how the AWS teams are organized internally. That if the, the point is every team is individual and has an API that everybody else can consume off of, and everybody else is a hostile entity. Think about how that would be at work and how the, that interplay happens with dynamics of groups of people. Now, as a disclaimer, I've never worked for Amazon and I don't know anybody who currently does work in the AWS trenches, but it's hard to consider an organization of that size building software the way they build it, not having a culture like that. Very much. And I've got a couple of buddies that have passed through the ranks of Amazon and some I'm closer to than others. Uh, take that as you will, more or less. Amazon's a interesting place to work and you definitely have to be the right type of person. But the, the whole construct of your team interoperates with everyone else as a direct consumer uh, rather than somebody you're letting backdoor into your database because you work with them is a powerful concept. And it's it's also difficult to work around the, the extra work that's required up front to make sure the APIs and securities and the rate limiting stuff is there up front uh, when you're trying to, to, to push something out the door. It does give you a very good sense of what is done and what is ready for production if even your internal testing has to be done with the idea of rate limiting in mind. So you can't kind of skirt around it and say, oh, well, I think, I think we'll be fine. 
no, it, when it's ready, it's ready. And in, until then, you know it can't be turned on yet. The other company that comes to mind when I think about Conway's Law is kind of the opposite, and that is Apple Computer, or I guess it's just Apple Incorporated at this point. They have a incredible secrecy net that they have built up over the last 20 years or so in terms of preventing leaks and keeping trade secrets confidential and keeping everything quiet and tucked down for the big reveal once or twice or three times a year, depending on which product you're thinking about. And having heard some stories from people at conferences who, who have worked either for or at Apple, and speak, they were speaking in very general terms, of course, but they had very siloed teams of folks who were working on projects because secrecy was so paramount to everything they did. And so often people didn't know about a service that would benefit their team until the keynote happened. And they're like, oh, we're writing a language internally that's really awesome because this is Swift. This is Apple's, it was internal and now it's an open source language. But a lot of developers at Apple didn't know about the Swift project until it was announced on stage. That's kind of scary. Yeah, and it's the other side of how Conway's law works. If your organization is focused on secrecy, that will reflect itself in all the things you build and all the things you do because it's paramount to the organization of the company. Yep. The other thing that that this effect brings to mind is what's called the Dunning-Kruger effect, named after two, two psychologists in the late 90s, I think 1999. And... It's the ability for people to perceive their own weaknesses in areas, especially when it comes to their competency. And so when you have a confirmation bias issue, like when you're building an building a system and you think, oh, this is the one true way we should do things, the Dunning-Kruger effect informs us that people who aren't aware that they're not the best people to do it are usually the ones who think they're the best to do it, which is kind of a bizarre way to think about it. But there's four basic points of somebody who's falling into this trap. Um, they fail to recognize their own lack of skill. They fail to recognize the extent of their inadequacy. They fail to gauge the skill, the skill in others. And they only recognize their lack of skill after being exposed to formal training in that skill. And this taken into effect along with Conway's law and the confirmation bias pieces mean that people who are making these decisions often don't realize that they're making poor decisions, which only reinforces their ability to keep on making these poor decisions. And that's how you get into the place where you have senior DBAs who don't know how to secure databases because they're DBAs and they don't do system stuff, but they own the box because they're the DBAs. I love being caught in that chicken egg problem. But this is an interesting problem as it relates to growth of companies because it's really, really very difficult um, and takes a great amount of care and planning to successfully hire people that are smarter than you. I mean, the the person you want to bring on to your team is the person that's smarter than everyone else on the team. And with our, our own confirmation biases, we see people that are sort of on our same plateau, and we end up getting along with them and have, building that relationship very easily. And it's... It's very difficult for us to, to sort of open our mind to see someone that that is perhaps working at a different level. Yeah, I would completely agree that one of the most difficult things is seeing how somebody else's differing talents from yours can make them either more effective at what they do or differently effective at what they do. 
and how that can complement service teams, that's really a hard thing for oh, a lot totally. of people to, to really get. Um, one of my, my favorite and best bosses over the years, the first thing he does when he walks into an organization is he finds the person internally that can replace him and then grooms that person to be able to replace him so when he needs to leave, he doesn't leave the organization in a lurch. And that's one of the, the hallmarks, I think, of somebody who's moved past some of these problems in, in terms of being able to to realize their own strengths and weaknesses honestly and objectively and then go find people who do that thing and possibly do it better and help them become even better at what they do. Awesome and difficult work. Difficult. I mean, I I totally agree, but, uh, you know, part of my inward struggle is how do I make progress on my day-to-day items and and help people avoid uh, uh, things like pager fatigue, help people build up people so that they can be their own monitoring experts. Teach people statistics. Teach people statistics. So there's a couple of books that if you haven't read already, you really probably should have. And one of them is The Mythical Man Month by Fred Brooks. Another one would be the DevOps Handbook, which is, sorry, The Phoenix Project, which is the DevOps Handbook by Gene Kim. Um, The Phoenix Project um, was Gene Kim's earlier book. Um, I read that in 2012, 2013-ish. That book played no small part in the reasoning why I left my first employer. Scary stuff. Gene Kim and Alan Allspaul and a bunch of other uh, big names in this field have uh, recently released a new book called The DevOps Handbook, uh, which definitely uh, ex- takes what the Phoenix Project taught us and expands it more. Um, I have not read that book yet, but um, digital download is less than $10, so it's not a not a large uh, financial obligation to jump into. And if that meets anything, you know, as compared to how how it's reviewed, as compared to the Phoenix Project, then it's definitely a worthwhile read to start learning how to pick apart your company culture, start learning how to shift things in the right direction. And really, that's, that's sort of the hard part is how do you as one or two people or a small team in a larger company, how do you start making those shifts to get to a, a better communications workflow? Other books I think we should put on the list of required reading, especially for confirmation bias, is The Practice of System and Network Administration by Thomas Lemoncelli and f- several other very smart folks, as well as The Practice of Cloud System Administration by the same group. Um, really good references to look into and say, am I doing this wrong? Have I thought this problem all the way through? Have others come before me with better wisdom or better approaches to doing this that I'm not thinking of? If Um, I was teaching a college-level course in operations work, those books would probably be my textbooks. And they're amazing reference books. Buy them, read read through them, and then stick them on the shelf. And so when you need to figure out one of the pieces, they're there. We've we've said this before on this podcast, but especially when it comes to trying to break down confirmation bias, they are invaluable. All right, Brendan. So we've both been in several different employers that have suffered from these biases. We've not always been with the same employer or the same team. So uh, how did you 
work to try to improve things? So for me, the the best way, and this is a personal, this is a personal approach that I've taken in the past that works generally fairly well, is to go find members of teams you do not get along with, and have lunch with them once a week, or invite them to your one on ones, or invite them to your group standups, or other ways to get them personally involved so they see a human being on the other side in a non-threatening manner. Because once once the communication devolves to only being over email or only being on the phone, very quickly all the humanity gets sucked out of the room. One of the best ways to get that reinstated is to sit down and have face-to-face informal conversations about technical issues and non-technical issues so you can build up some basic levels of trust. And from there, you can start exploring projects together. You can say, hey, we're, we're thinking of doing, we're thinking of re- rebuilding the storage system. We're thinking of changing network layouts. We're thinking of all kinds of things. And you can start to bridge the gap between groups that way. A number of jobs ago, there was a, a gentleman who worked in the network security group. And our teams did not get along very well. And even though it was painful for him, he insisted on coming over to our side of the organization at least once a month to sit down in a meeting where we would all yell at him and tell him all the things that were broken. But he was trying desperately to keep the lines of communication alive because he knew that once there was no communication left at all, things would get much worse. That's an enlightened person. Oh, yes. And I I had trouble seeing it at the time because I was so buried in the silo that I was I was living in that it was hard to see out of it. But he brought me around to the the light of why he was doing what he was doing and helped to really bridge a lot of the gaps. Um, that group had made several hires recently who didn't have the political baggage and were able to kind of work together. And we had a, a really good year or two working towards a common good and things were, that, that relationship was healing rather rapidly. It was very nice. Good. Yeah, I've been, I found myself repeatedly in situations that don't change or heal as quickly or at all as as I would like. There's there's definitely working for universities and the divide between systems that we've we've already discussed. And that was there were some challenging moments. There were some really fun and awesome moments. Um what we try to do in that particular environment is we had a team that had good practices, were successful in in operations tasks and deploying services and helping other folks. And the more folks that we could interact with and help, and how can I help you get on board our common system so that you can be more productive? And eventually, uh, that mindset started to spread. And once that mindset starts spread, you have you have a group of people that are being very successful at the job, and that's really hard to hold up a good argument against when folks bring that much value to the to the institution. As a as an aside, as part of this, one of the important things to keep in mind as you're trying to help other people solve a problem with a tool that you have written is remember that it's not always that their problem needs to fit the tool, that there are times at which the tool isn't the right tool or the tool needs to be changed and modified to make it more suitable for their particular case. 
And in my experience, it's about half and half. Half the time, the tool that you've written or you've developed or your team has been using, the, the bespoke handcrafted ornamental tool you've built for yourselves that works perfectly for your use doesn't meet the needs of another group. But often, and this is back to confirmation bias, they, they're approaching a problem from one perspective and they don't even realize they can approach it from a different one. So meeting in the middle to find out what the common ground is and how to help the tool chain and help the people bridge that gap is really, really helpful. One of the challenges I face is that I work mostly remotely with folks really all over the United States. And so it's it's expensive and time-consuming to get in the same room with somebody. So I use a bunch of telecommunications apps to sort of interact with people and a lot of email and instant messaging style stuff. And it's really easy to not always see the humans on the other end of the, uh, of the connection. Um, it's really difficult to... It's really difficult to bring up changes and try to enforce changes and try to steer things toward what may or may not be a better path. And it's difficult to get folks together to come over their uh, confirmation bias and see and, and accurately test if this new proposal is works better for the company or not. One of the challenges that I've had working in a similar environment is having one team on the East Coast and one team on the West Coast who all work together in person. And I'm the remote employee who has never really worked in person with any of them. And the two teams are fighting over which tool or which style of, of thing they should be doing. And I'm in the middle of going, guys, I just, I'm just trying to get my pieces of this working. How can I... I just want my machine installed. Well, how, how do I... <laughs> How do I leverage what I know and what you guys know so we can build a better common future, that we don't have these kinds of arguments going forward? And being remote in those situations can be really hard, especially when you have two groups who are not remote to each other. But I definitely find the time I spend traveling and being on site is incredibly valuable. And frankly, the most valuable time is grabbing some of your workmates that you don't spend physical time with and having a beer. There's almost no end to the power of a beer and a whiteboard. <laughs> you can talk through and talk out so many bizarre technical problems so quickly that way, especially for teams that are used to being physically disparate. So never and underestimate you something that. walking out of the bar. And when we have a melding of the minds and we both walk away from the encounter uh, having learned something and have a future path that we can plan for and proceed upon, uh, that's that's the power of a beer and a whiteboard. And honestly, to me, that's the, the biggest reason to not work from home, the, to not do remote work, is there are some places and some cultures and some people that work better in person. And for those environments, sometimes it's best to be in person with them, even if only for a week out of a year. When I took this job, the the whole work from home concept, the remote concept was what I struggled with most is, is that going to be a, a lifestyle 
that I can work with. Uh, and knowing that people are people, uh, and it's much difficult to work uh, uh, socially with someone that's remote that you don't know, that you haven't really had any social interaction with before. And having been in situations where where the culture just would not have supported that at all, even if it had been allowed, um, that was that was a scary point for me. Um, but I had the ability to to bridge that gap and come on board with a team that actively were all remote and actively supported each other, and the company culture and schedules and policies were built around. Uh, having remote employees. So I could then take that knowledge to other remote clients that I work with who may not be quite so used to supporting remote employees and supporting a good culture and try to bring some of those uh, culture-isms with me. One of them is using the actual camera when I teleconference, which I'm really bad about. I am also terrible at doing that. I want people to understand my residual self-image is the, the guy with the tie on that appears on their screen. Not the, the guy with unkept hair and a bad vendor t-shirt leaning over an IBM Model M keyboard. So the takeaways from this conversation. Be aware of your organizational structure and your communication structures because it influences how you build and design everything that you touch at work. Sometimes this is good and sometimes this is bad, but you need to be aware of it. Try to be aware of cognitive biases, especially confirmation bias, when it comes to understanding, building, and trying to make things better. And then finally remember that the Dunning-Krieger effect is real. And if you are very, very. confident in this is the right way to do things, you're probably either wholly or partially wrong, and you should go figure out what it is that other people could offer you. An article I read recently, we'll put it in the show notes, reminds me that if you want to produce good, clean code, and don't we all, you can improve the code quality of your next project today by improving your social relations with your team members. That's probably one of the more effective ways to improve the quality of your code. Absolutely. Think of, think of your, your code not so much as a project, but as a house that you're going to live in. For many of the things we work on, they're a lot more complex than a simple tool or script. We're going to be living in that house for quite some time. Perhaps it is the foundation of a business. And you can't uh, afford so to be constantly revisiting every complex structure every time anything needs to change. You need to be able to build things so that the rest of the team and the rest of the organization understand how and why they work and other people can contribute. And the the concept of of thinking about remodeling sections of your code instead of of tearing down and starting from scratch. Please take the time to rate the show on iTunes. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave a comment on the website at operations.fm. 
Send us your thoughts and email, feedback at operations.fm, or use Operations FM on Twitter. That wraps it up for the 40th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. We have been Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. Thanks for listening.